You know, you guys can yell good morning to somebody across the room if you want to. There you That's better. Thank you. <laughs> so with that said, uh, elementary kids, you guys are dismissed, and uh, youth group, so middle schoolers, high schoolers, you guys are dismissed as well. Pastor Chris is ready to steal you away to safety over there at the door. And everybody else, super glad to see you this morning. We do have some, um, some fun things, I think, uh, coming up for the summer that we're going to talk a little bit about next week on Memorial Day weekend as the summer kind of officially kicks off. Um, this morning we have a full, uh, our plate is pretty full, but before we start, I did want to mention, I was especially ministered to by what Rob read from the book of Revelation this morning, and not simply because it was a fantastic passage out of the Bible, um, but it is kind of bittersweet because uh, this morning is uh, Rob's last Sunday with us. For those of you that don't know Rob, he's been a part of this church longer than most any of us. He's been here for 12 years, and for 10 of those 12 years, he has served faithfully as a deacon, kind of overseeing uh, the setup of so many different uh, church events and of the Sunday services. He's taught midweek studies, he's led life groups, he's led men's Bible studies, uh, you name it, Rob has done it. And unfortunately, he's the latest casualty in the Bay Area exodus that is occurring. And um, we're excited for him because he's just moving out of the Bay Area uh, further north in the state to be closer to family. And uh, so we never, we never can fault anybody for that. I'll find plenty of reasons to fault people for moving away, but that's not one of them. So we do want to bless Rob today. And just, if you see, I'm going to make him raise his hand. He, he'll kill me, but that's Rob in the back. So in the back, of course, where you would expect a true servant to be. But make sure you find him afterward and uh, bless him. He'll be hanging around today as long as you will, because he's in charge of locking up today. That's the way we're, we're sending him off by that. So Rob, we thank you for your years of faithful service. And more importantly, the Lord thanks you and sees uh, everything that you've done. And I don't want to take any more of your reward away in heaven, so we'll just stop talking about it now. So let's pray, and uh, we're going to jump uh, into the word this morning. So Father, we thank you for this morning, and we do, Lord, we thank you for Rob, and we thank you for just the years of faithful service and his love for this church body, Lord, and we will miss him so dearly, Lord. But we are excited for the things that you have uh, ahead in store for him, Lord, and we are um, uh, envious, Lord, with a, a godly sense of, of envy, Lord, for whatever church fellowship that he will bless as he gets plugged in um, in his new home, Lord. And we just pray that you would make his time there just as fruitful as you've made his time here. And so we thank you for him, Lord. Pray that you'd bless him, Lord. And we pray as well that you would bless our time today as we study your word. And we pray that you'd speak to us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if uh, you don't have a Bible, you are especially going to need a Bible this morning, and Deacon Rob would be happy to bring you one. Uh, if you just raise your hand, uh, he'll get one for you and bring it to you. And if you don't have a Bible, so a couple down here in front maybe. Um, if you don't have a Bible, please take that one um, with you. And if you don't like the Bible that we give you, then let us know and we'll buy you one that you do like, because we want everybody to have a Bible. So with the Bible that you have, or the Bible on your phone, or whatever Bible you can muster, turn to Joshua chapter 18. 
And we looked last week, you remember, at uh, chapter 16 and 17. This morning, we're going to be looking together at chapters 18 and 19. And they are the last of these chapters that have really been sort of detailing the division of these individual sections of land within the promised land, as it's divided up then between the 12 tribes of Israel, given to them as this wonderful inheritance that was promised to them by the Lord. And you remember this section started back in chapter 13. We saw the land kind of on that east side of the Jordan, given by Moses to the tribes of Reuben and Gad and to half of that tribe of Manasseh. Remember, they decided not to take land in the promised land proper, kind of across the Jordan, but they chose instead to settle kind of in, that, in the country to raise their cattle. So uh, then in chapter 14, we began the division of the land really on the west side of the Jordan. And before we even got started with that, we saw Caleb, right? Faithful Caleb, he came in to kind of cash in on this promise of the Lord that had been made to him 45 years earlier, this promise of the special inheritance that he would get because of his faithfulness. And then we watched in chapter 15, we saw all of that territory, all of those cities that were given to that prominent tribe of Judah down in the whole southern part of the promised land. Last week, chapter 16 and 17, we then looked at the inheritance that was given to the tribes of Joseph, those two tribes, right? Ephraim and the other half of the tribe of Manasseh. And they received that land, which was that sort of that central portion of the land of Canaan. And now this morning, we're going to see the land which is given to all of the remaining tribes of Israel. It's the inheritance to the, cleverly I have titled today's message, the inheritance of the rest of the tribes. So I know, very clever. I, I spend a lot of time thinking these things up. But, but I think within this, what we're going to see is I think there are just scores and scores of really practical lessons that we can glean as we just touch so briefly on each of the stories of these tribes. I, I tell you that each tribe could easily be an entire Sunday morning message in and of themselves. And we are really just going to scratch the surface in the 79 verses that we're gonna, don't panic. We're not gonna read every one, but we are gonna get through 79 verses this morning. But even before we get to those individual sort of accounts of the tribes, we're gonna read of a pretty significant move that's made here by Joshua. Look at verse one of Joshua 18. It says, now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. So here, before these final divisions of the land were actually made, Joshua orders the Israelites to kind of make this move en masse, right, from the, their current camp, which was at Gilgal, that very first place that they had set up and sort of encamped right after they'd crossed over the Jordan. Now they move about 20 miles to the northwest from the Jordan River Valley up into the hill country to the city of Shiloh. Now Shiloh sat high on this hill. It was within the inheritance that we saw was given to Ephraim. It's about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. It's just a few miles 
uh, north of the city of Bethel. Bethel, of course, where Jacob had laid his head, remember back in chapter uh, 28 of Genesis, and he saw that vision of the, the angels of God ascending and descending, and he called that place the house of God, or Bethel. And as we mentioned, when we mentioned this move last week, no doubt Joshua had been directed by the Lord to make this move, possibly for military purposes, because this city would have been much easier to defend because of its sort of mountainous location. But primarily this move, no doubt, was made for spiritual purposes, because Shiloh, located here right in the center of the land, was a much more central, much more convenient location for all of the tribes as they're now fanning out right into their individual territories. This central location would have made it far more feasible for them to return and, and to gather for all of these feasts to worship there in the tabernacle, right, in the tent of meeting. Now, I think, though, that this move was made for far more than just the sake of convenience because I think it was really, it speaks more so to consecration, right? It speaks to, it's a reminder of the importance of their consecration as a people unto the Lord because now we have the tabernacle right there set up in the center of Israel. Just as a, just the location would have served as a key reminder that the, you know, again, the key to their prosperity and their blessing now that they're in the land was keeping the worship of Jehovah right at the center of their lives nationally and of their lives individually. So Shiloh now would be both the spiritual as well as the administrative capital of the whole nation. And the tabernacle, I think we said last week, would sit there in Shiloh for nearly 400 years. 369 years, for those of you who like to do math, until the time when David would finally capture Jerusalem. And the very first thing that we see him do is to move the tabernacle from Shiloh up to that new capital city. Because wherever the tabernacle was, was the heart of the nation. And so here, the, the moving of the tabernacle from Gilgal to Shiloh was the moving really of the life of Israel itself because it was the moving of the dwelling place of God himself amongst his people. Remember, the tabernacle, as you know, was just the portable version of what we would later see in the temple, right? But they very much served the same purpose. They provided this place where God could meet with his people and where he could be there with his people. It was a, a symbol of his presence amongst Israel, right? That central presence of the Lord right at the center. Remember how they encamped around the tabernacle during all their years in the wilderness. This is what it said in Exodus chapter 25. The Lord declared this. He said that there I will meet with you. So speaking of the tabernacle, there I will meet with you and I will speak to you from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So God was present with his people. He was at the center of his people right there in the tabernacle. 
In fact, the Hebrew text, the word tabernacle, comes from a root word shaka, which simply means to dwell or to rest or to abide. And it's from that very same word that we get the word you've probably heard of is shekinah. That word shekinah, which we use to refer to the presence of the glory of God, the shekinah glory of God, or that visible manifestation of God's presence with his people that rested right there above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies here in the tabernacle. And so again, all of this to say that this was a significant move, and it's now almost like this next chapter in the history of Israel, this next season in the life of Israel can now actually get started as they're here in their inheritance. But, we read in verse 2, it says, but there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not yet received their inheritance. And then Joshua said to the children of Israel, how long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given to you. Now, this may seem like kind of a strange question, but I think it signals to us, as some have suggested, that it must have somehow been up to the leaders of each tribe to approach Joshua and to say, okay, Joshua, we're ready. We're ready now to receive our lot. We're ready for our inheritance. And yet what we see is that at this point, there were still seven of the 12 tribes that still hadn't even done that. And it looks to me like Joshua is not happy at all about this situation. And here he's kind of getting after these guys to prod them into action. Now, of course, the question, why in the world would these tribes not be chomping at the bit, right? Why would they not want to possess their own land? Well, there could be a number of reasons, not the least of which, remember, these are people who have not lived in permanent dwellings for more than a whole generation. Many of them were born in the wilderness. They have never lived in anything but a tent. So on some level, they may have simply been afraid of anything different anything new, even though it was good. And yet I think that based on what Joshua says, it goes beyond even just kind of a fear of something good. There seems to be some kind of fault implied here. There's a, a failure of some kind, a fault on their part. And what he faults them for, look at that word there, there's a neglect. There's a neglect to go up and to take possession of the land. In fact, they are so neglectful, they haven't even taken enough of initiative, enough of an initiative to find out what part of the land is theirs. And so really he's rebuking them for their failure to act. Now the old King James, I have to say in this instance, I think it has it a bit better than the new King James, because here's the way the old King James puts that verse. It says that Joshua said unto the children of Israel, how long are ye slack to go possess the land which the Lord your God has given to you? Right, we talk about somebody slacking off on the job or just someone is a a slacker. And so these, they're just being neglectful, they're being lazy. These seven tribes are being spiritual slackers. So we will can affectionately call them, these are the seven slacker tribes, 
right? Uh, maybe a nicer way of translating that word neglect, it could sort of imply that they were relaxed. Maybe a little bit, you know, maybe that hits a little bit more close to home for some of us. They're just a little bit too relaxed about really pursuing God's plan for their lives. And so Joshua kind of wakes them up to the fact, look, you guys need to get going. You need to get going on fulfilling what it is that God has for you. Do you remember way back in chapter 1, that first promise that the Lord gave to Joshua, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, the Lord said that every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. And that's a great promise, right? It's probably underlined if you go back to chapter one. But the problem with that promise is that we have to tread upon it, right? We've got to walk on that that we want to possess because we only will ever occupy whatever it is that we actually walk on, whatever it is that we stand on. And so if I were to ask you what you do with the promises of God, I know that some of you would say this, well, I memorized them. And I'd say, well, that's awesome because the, you know, the Bible says that your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you, right? Psalm 19, verse 11. And so that is a good move. Others of you would say, well, I underlined them digitally. And I have a color-coded and you know, multi-catalog systems with meta tags, and I've organized every verse so that I can call them up by keywords whenever they need them at any moment on my phone, which is always with me. And again, I would say, good for you, right? If, if you're gifted in that way, good for you. But my hope for all of you is that somewhere down the line that we would all actually be able to say, you know, I actually use them. I actually walk by them and I stand on them and I walk in them. I live my life by them. I apply them to my life because these promises are my life. That's the point that we want to get to. And this is a very familiar quote, one of the best by Charles Spurgeon. He said, most Christians are only up to their ankles in the river of experience. Some have waited till the stream is up to their knees. A few find the water up to their shoulders, but very few find it a river to swim in, the bottom of which they cannot touch. So where are you, right, in terms of God's promises, in terms of God's truth to you? Do you just sort of dip your toes in and say, oh, well, that's nice. You know, my ankle, my feet are cooled off, I'm up to my ankles. Or do you go in up to your knees? Or do you just plunge in? Do you just really take that plunge until you, you're so deep you can't find the bottom? You are all in. And that's what Joshua is saying to them. He's saying, guys, jump in, dive in, walk through. What in the world are you waiting for? And as I read this, I have to say, I sense a little bit of exasperation from Joshua with these people. And the next thing we see is that they're going to come up with a whole new, you know, he and the leaders are going to come up with kind of a whole new initiative for how they're going to allocate the land, right? So he's got the heads of the tribes of these seven, the seven slacker tribes of Israel. They've been called into the principal's office. And Joshua says this 
in verse 4. He says, pick out from among you three men for each tribe, and I will send them. They shall rise and go through the land, survey it according to their inheritance, and come back to me. And they shall divide it into seven parts. Judah shall remain in their territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall remain in their territory on the north. You shall therefore survey the land in seven parts. Bring the survey here to me, that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord our God." But the Levites have no part among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. And Gad, Reuben, and half the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan on the east, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. Translation, Joshua says, look, I am done dealing with you slackers. He says, get some guys together and figure this out. Go out divide up the land that's left into seven different sections, bring me the sections, and then we will let the Lord decide, right? We're going to let the Lord decide which tribe goes into which section according to his lot. And just, you know, briefly, I think this is a great example of them doing what they could do and laying it all out before the Lord so that he could give his supernatural direction. And there's such a beautiful balance here, right, as we do our part in any given set of circumstances or in any big, you know, life kind of decisions. We do our part, but then we leave the final decision up to God. So absolutely do your research, make your lists, run the numbers, but in the end, leave it to the Lord to decide which direction you go. Verse 8, it says that then the men arose to go away, and Joshua charged those who went to survey the land, saying, Go, walk through the land, survey it, and come back to me, that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. And I love what Joshua says here to these men about the land, because I think it reminds us, doesn't it, of exactly what God had said to Abraham 400 years before this, right here in the land. Make a note next to this verse where it says, go walk through the land and survey it, and then compare that. Remember back in Genesis chapter 13, where the Lord said to Abraham, he said, arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. So remember at that point, God wanted Abraham, and he wants us, he wanted Abraham, even before we possess the land, we should be exploring the land, right? To walk through that land of promise. And notice all of the land of promise. He wanted Abraham to walk through it, all of it, as though it were already his. And for us, it, the parallel, in the very same way, God wants us to explore all of the land of promise that he's given to us which is, it's a test, which is his word that he's given to us, right? These are the promises. This is where God has given us these exceedingly great and precious promises. This is where he's given to us, as Peter continues, all things that pertain to life and godliness. This is all ours, and he wants us to walk through it and to survey it and to explore it and to really take it in even as we're preparing to really possess it 
by faith. Because here's what I can promise you, just like with Abraham, the more that we can take it in, right, the more that we see of it and the more we start to see the beauty of it and the promises in it, the more faith and the more appetite, the more yearning we'll have in our hearts to really, that'll grow for it, to really take it and make it our own. So verse 9 says that the men went, they passed through the land, and they wrote the survey in a book in seven parts by cities. And they came to Joshua at the camp in Shiloh. Now we don't know exactly how long this kind of a Sounds to me like a pretty complex task. We don't know how long it may have taken, but we do know that this was not an easy job, right? Surveying the land is not a skill that everyone has, right? They couldn't just pull up Google Maps and start printing stuff out and marking it out, right, in magic markers, deciding whose was what. This was like one hilltop to the next and one valley to another, right? All kinds of geometry and topography and all these things. And you sit back and you wonder, well, where in the world would these guys have gotten these kinds of skills to do this? Well, I'm glad you asked because interestingly, somebody asked, right? One person maybe asked. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that they had learned these kinds of surveying skills, where? In Egypt. They put the picture up before I even said it, didn't they? So you knew. Right? Any Israelite who was 20 years of age or younger when they left Egypt, if they had lived there and, you know, they were entering now into the promised land, they would have been involved as teenagers in all kinds of these construction projects that would have required exactly these kinds of skills. And anyone who was over 20 when they left Egypt, who had died in the wilderness, if they had had these special kinds of skills, no doubt they would have passed them on to their children as they wandered through the wilderness. There's not much to do but stare out at the hills, right, and, and talk about how you might survey them. And the thing that I love about this thought is it's such a great reminder for us that nothing is ever wasted in God's economy. Right. Pastor Chuck Smith, who many of you know, kind of was the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement, um, his memoirs are called uh, A Memoir of Grace. And it's a wonderful book. And, and in it, he recounts what he summarizes has been the major theme of his life. And that is that everything is preparation for something else. Or that everything is preparation for the next thing. And I think this is such a great encouragement. If you are wondering why you seem to be stuck in this lifelong geometry lesson that you're in the middle of, or you're struggling through some kind of an endless Egyptian building program, whatever that is for you in your life right now, take heart because you will very likely see later that the Lord will absolutely use all of the things that you're learning now. And you'll see, even this time, you'll see that there's a great purpose in what's happening to you now because God's going to use it all for his purposes later in ways that you have no idea yet. So you've got these 21 guys, right? They're sent out. They make this survey. They record their results. Now they bring the book 
back to Joshua, verse 10, then Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord, and there Joshua divided the land to the children of Israel according to their divisions. So now, this time in Shiloh, we see the very same thing that we already saw happen in Gilgal, right? We've got the leaders of the tribes, which we're gonna see later. We got the leaders of the tribes, we have Eleazar the priest, we have Joshua, and they're casting the lot of the Lord for each tribe. Now, we covered the casting of lots in, in dreadful, detailed depth already, I know. If you missed it, check it out, it was back in chapter seven. But remember the casting of lots was, the, was prescribed in the law, it was recognized by Israel as nothing less than the divinely ordained method by which the Lord would directly and supernaturally make his will for his people known to his people. And in this case, we've seen this picture a hundred times, it was suggested that it likely involved, you know, a pot or an urn which had little slips of parchment perhaps with the names of the tribes written. And they would pull out, select a name of the tribe and then match it up with whatever, you know, the section or the division of land that was uh, sort of up at that point. And again, the key here is that God was superintending this entire process supernaturally. And so next, as the lots were cast, we're going to see these seven specific divisions now assigned to these seven slacker tribes. Starting here, it says in verse 11, this is the lot of the tribe of the children of Benjamin. It says it came up according to their families. The territory of their lot came between the children of Judah and the children of Joseph. Verse 12 talks about the border on the north side. Verse 14 finishes where the border was on the west side. Uh, verse 15, again, the south side begins there. Verse 19, you see the end of the southern boundary. Verse 20 says that the Jordan was its border on the east and that this was the inheritance of the children of Benjamin according to its boundaries all around according to their families. So in that section of verses, we have kind of those general boundaries of the tribe of Benjamin, right? Right between, it says there in verse 11, and you can see it on the map, kind of nestled right there between Judah and Joseph, which is a reference to the tribe of Ephraim. And if you remember, we mentioned last week that throughout the history of Israel, Judah and Ephraim were also kind of rivals. And so plucked right there, you know, in the middle of them, sort of as a buffer, we have Benjamin, right, who would see, we're gonna see, sort of functions in the role of a peacemaker. Now Benjamin was the smallest of the tribes territorially, but they received a wonderful inheritance, we might say, historically. All of their territory is covered by mountains and ravines. It's only about 25 miles wide. It's only about 15 miles at its highest point from north to south. But in this next set of verses, we're going to see it includes a whole lot of cities that are very important biblically. Verse 21 says these are the cities of the tribe of the children of Benjamin. Verse 24 says there's 12 cities. Verse 28, we see 14 cities with, its, with their villages. So a total of about 26 cities and the villages that surrounded them. But within that list of the names of the cities that we didn't read, 
we see that in there we see Jericho and Ai and Bethel and Gibeon and Ramah and Mizpah and, of course, the Jebusite city of Jerusalem. Now, some of you who paid attention are scratching your heads and saying, wait a minute, I thought Jerusalem was also included in the land that was given to Judah back in chapter 15. And that's true because the city of Jerusalem was actually shared by Judah and Benjamin. The borderline of the two tribes goes right through the city. Look at verse 16. It's the valley of Hinnom to the side of the Jebusite city. So what happened is as the city expanded to include what we know now as the Temple Mount, it expanded beyond the boundaries of Judah right into the boundaries of Benjamin so that the site of the future temple in Jerusalem was actually within the boundaries of the tribe of Benjamin, which fulfills perfectly a prophecy that Moses had made back in Deuteronomy. It says of Benjamin, he said, that the beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him who shelters him all the day long, and he shall dwell between his shoulders. So Benjamin's land, though not great land, it provided, I mean, it included all of these wonderful sites and these evidences and these signs of the past and the present and the future blessings. It was a really kind of a rich lot that was given to this youngest son of Jacob. Now, the tribe of Benjamin, was, a, though they were a small tribe, they were a mighty tribe. They became known for their fierce warriors. Again, perfectly in keeping with what Jacob had said. In Genesis 49, he says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he shall devour the prey, and at night, he shall divide the spoil. And this prophecy we see throughout their history is going to have both kind of a side of blessing, but it's also going to have a dark side as well. Because in the book of Judges, we see that they are great warriors they're great warriors for the good of the nation, but also for the protecting of the evil of their own iniquity as a tribe. We're going to see that they're going to, the tribe of Benjamin rises up against the other 11 tribes and causes a civil war in the pretty ugly incident in Judges 19. Remember, as the tribe of Benjamin protects the perpetrators of that awful assault on the concubine of the Levite. Now, what's interesting is that there's two notable men, both named Saul, who would come to us from the tribe of Benjamin. And these two men really illustrate this kind of a duality between our natures. The first Saul would be King Saul. Right? King Saul, the first, right, the people's king over all Israel, is a picture for us of a man of the flesh. Right? He's a warrior. He's unsubmitted to God. He is the epitome of that picture of the sin nature and its war against God. God. Now, the second Saul is Saul of Tarsus whose name was changed, of course, to the Apostle Paul because his nature had been changed by God from this murderous Pharisee to the great Apostle of Grace. So Paul pictures for us 
this wonderful example of what God does in those who come to him by faith in Christ. And the tribe of Benjamin perfectly, you know, sort of pictures these two men, gives us these two men that illustrate both the good and the evil that's possible, and they both come from, um, from Benjamin. Now, as we move into chapter 19, look at that, we're done with chapter 18. We move into chapter 19, now we have a record of all of these remaining tribes. And it begins right here in verse 1, the second lot came out for Simeon. Verse 6, it says they got 13 cities. Verse 7, they got four cities. But look at verse 9. It says that the inheritance of the children of Simeon was included in the share of the children of Judah. For the share of the children of Judah was too much for them. Therefore, the children of Simeon had their inheritance within the inheritance of that people. So, here we see that because Judah had more territory than they needed, that Simeon got a section of land along with these 17 cities within the land that had already been given to Judah. So Judah's excess, though, was not the only reason for this kind of strange lot falling to Simeon. The tribe of Simeon was the smallest. It was the weakest of all the tribes as they came out of their wilderness wanderings. You see, interestingly, they're omitted entirely from the blessing that Moses gave in Deuteronomy 33. And of course, none of this is surprised that they're kind of in such a shaky place as a tribe based on Jacob's prophecy that he made as, uh, as he blessed all of his sons. Again, Genesis 49, he said this, that Simeon and Levi are brothers Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in, they, in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, some of you already know this takes us back to that episode in Genesis chapter 30. Remember when Dinah, the sister of these 12 brothers who would become the heads of the 12 tribes, Dinah was raped by the prince of Shechem. And then after that, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, sort of took matters into their own hands. Remember they tricked the men of Shechem into getting circumcised you know, presumably so they could marry, you know, the, the women of Israel. But while all the men of the city were recovering, remember that Simeon and Levi, kind of in their rage out for revenge, they sneaked into the city under the cover of night and they slaughtered all of the Shechemite men. And so we see here Jacob's prophecy as a result of that sin, it perfectly comes past here for the tribe of Simeon as they're forced to share that inheritance within Judah. Share is sort of the essence of that word divide there in Jacob's prophecy. In just a couple of weeks, we're going to see the way it comes to pass for the tribe of Levi as they are scattered throughout the land. So here they start out shared and scattered for Simeon and Levi as a direct result of their sin. But what we see for Simeon is that things are only going to get worse from here. 
because it won't be long before Simeon is totally to lose all of her individuality as a tribe. Her territory is gonna be incorporated eventually back into Judah. Because what happens is that many of the citizens of Simeon migrated north up into Ephraim and Manasseh right around that time in 2 Chronicles 15 after the division of the kingdom following Solomon's reign. Because here's what happened. Although Simeon was part of the southern kingdom geographically, they found themselves much more aligned kind of politically and ideologically with the rebellion in the northern kingdoms. So they all migrated north and eventually lost their tribal identity entirely. Then they were carried away captive with the northern kingdoms by Assyria in 722 BC, which was a full 150 years before Babylon would eventually do the same thing and carry the southern kingdom of Judah away. So all of that is to point out that their foolishness to leave their land and migrate north cost them 150 years of their freedom. So from the withholding of that unique inheritance individually to the losing of the land that they did have ultimately, it's this unbridled anger and that unchecked rebellion of the tribe of Simeon, it reminds us that our actions often have very severe consequences. And on that cheerful note, verse 10 says that the third lot came out for the children of Zebulun. Verse 16, it says, this was an inheritance of the children of Zebulun according to their families. So Zebulun's territory was located in the lower part of what would later become known as the Galilee, right up in the northern region of Israel. And interestingly, again, if you look back at these, this prophecy that Jacob made over each one of his sons, it's said in Genesis 49, 13, that Zebulun would live by the seashore and become a haven for ships, which is great, but it's hard to do when your territory seems to be landlocked. And yet, what most of the tribal maps, like this one, don't show, but what the details in all of this geographical and topographical description do indicate that there was one little strip of their land that extended all the way out to the Mediterranean. And Josephus historically confirms that so that the prophecy of Jacob biblically is proven out to be absolutely accurate. So there's one other note to note, is that the mention there in verse 15 of the city of Bethlehem, that's not the village of Bethlehem down in Judah where Jesus would eventually be born. According to Micah chapter five, it says, but you Bethlehem Epratath, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are of old from everlasting. So the Bethlehem where Jesus would be born was Bethlehem Epratath. So a distinction there. Verse 17 says that the fourth lot came out to Issachar. Verse 18 says that their territory went to Jezreel. Verse 22 says they had 16 cities with their villages. So 
Just east of Zebulun, south of the Sea of Galilee, was the tribe of Issachar, and they were given this beautiful, fertile, the whole valley of Jezreel. Now, the valley of Jezreel is one of the most beautiful places that you've ever seen. The valley of Jezreel is really the breadbasket for that entire part of the world. You can grow nearly anything in this valley. In fact, the best farms in Israel today are located right there in the Valley of Jezreel. And in fact, if I were like Zebulun, or if I were Benjamin, or if I were any of these other guys, and I saw what Issachar got, I might be saying, man, I wish I got that. I want what they got, right? They get the Valley of Jezreel. It's big, it's fertile, and of course, that's human nature, right? We want what we don't have. So often we wish we had a different allotment from the Lord for our life. But here's the thing. The Valley of Jezreel, it is huge, and it is fertile, and it is also a huge battlefield. And in fact, Napoleon Bonaparte, when he saw it in 1799, he said that it was the most natural battlefield on earth. He said that all of the armies of the world could maneuver their forces on this vast plain. And of course, those words will prove to be prophetic, won't they? Because the other name for the Valley of Jezreel is what? It's the Valley of Megiddo. This is the place where the final battle of human history, the Battle of Armageddon, will finally be fought. And one author commented of this, he said, Megiddo in Israel's Jezreel Valley is among the most fought over pieces of ground in history. The world's great armies have waged 34 known battles across the terrain surrounding the base of Tel Megiddo, the hilltop settlement. And just from the time that Issachar here gets this wonderful, fertile piece of beautiful land, it will be the site of some of the most, you know, the biggest sort of key clashes that are coming in Israel's history. They're on this land, they're going to clash with the Canaanites and the Midianites and the Philistines and finally the Egyptians. We're going to see that both the Assyrians and the Babylonians are going to stage battles right here as they take Israel captive. In modern times, this land has been the site of battles between the French and the British against the Ottoman Empire. And Israel itself has fought four modern-day battles, right? Two in 1948, one in 1967, and another in 1973 against Arab forces right here in this spot. Again, all of that to simply say this, be careful what you wish for, right? Because it might look great now. It might be big, and it might be fertile, and it might be beautiful, but you don't know what the future holds. God knows what the future holds. And he has given us the future of this tribe and of this valley. Verse 24 says that the fifth lot came out for the tribe of the children of Asher. Uh, down in verse 30, it says they had 22 cities. Verse 31, this was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Asher. Now, we might like the looks of the land that was given to Asher. 
because they get this huge chunk of the Mediterranean beach and the coastland running all the way up, you see there, up to Tyre and Sidon. And who wouldn't like some kind of sweet Mediterranean coastal villa? But, right, there's always a but, right? As beautiful as that land was visually, right, or vacationally, if that's even a word, they are in a very precarious position geographically and militarily. Because what we'll see in their history is that they're going to be attacked via the sea by both the Phoenicians and the Philistines. Remember, the Philistines were a sea people. They came from the islands out in the sea before they fully came and settled into Israel. Now, we don't hear much about the tribe of Asher in the rest of the history of Israel. They didn't really do much, probably, but kick back there on the beach, right? By David's time, Asher had pretty much faded into insignificance, though they didn't lose their tribal identity. And although Asher doesn't go down in history as a very prominent tribe or an important tribe, there is one very specific mention of Asher that stands out but it doesn't come until we get to the New Testament, where we find that there was an old lady, right, 84 years old, where we're told she was from the tribe of Asher. It's Anna of Asher. And in Luke chapter two, you might remember the story. It says that she's there in the temple as she was each and every day, and she's worshiping the Lord. And one day as she's worshiping the Lord, she sees this young couple come into the temple, and they're carrying a little baby. Of course, it's Joseph and it's Mary, and they're there to have Jesus dedicated. And immediately through the Spirit, Anna recognizes supernaturally that that baby is nothing less than the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. And Anna becomes one of the first people in the scriptures to proclaim and preach Jesus as Messiah. In Luke 2.38, it says that coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So it wasn't the strength of Asher's army, it wasn't the mighty deeds of the people that causes us to remember this tribe, right? It was the spiritual sensitivity of this 84-year-old widow, Anna the Asherite. No one necessarily notable in that tribe but her, and yet I would say she's got a pretty good pedigree. Verse 32, the sixth lot came out to the children of Naphtali. Verse 38 says that they had 19 cities. Verse 39 finishes up, says this was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Naphtali. So adjacent there to Asher, on the east we see Naphtali. Right? The Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee are their eastern boundary. And while this whole area is not very significant in the Old Testament, it will become extremely significant during the time of the New Testament because the inheritance of Naphtali and Zebulun together make up what Matthew's Gospel chapter 4 calls the Galilee of the Gentiles. And it was the area where most of the ministry 
of Jesus Christ would take place. But before that, right, throughout the history of Israel, as the two northernmost tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali, were constantly being beat up badly by their northern neighbors, right? Because most of the enemies of Israel, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, the Persians, the Romans, they all came down into Israel from the north. So consequently, this area started to be called the Galilee of the Gentiles because the Gentiles started to reside there ultimately and they overshadowed the Israelites completely. And yet, interestingly, right, prophetically, the Lord had promised through the prophet Isaiah in what you will very soon recognize as one of the most familiar prophecies of the coming Messiah, Jesus, Isaiah prophesied that the land of Zebulun and Naphtali would see a great light. In Isaiah chapter 9, in the first two verses, it says, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her. By way of the sea beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And then Isaiah goes on to declare in verse 6 of that, he says, for unto us, right, a child is born. Unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So the tribes that had suffered so many attacks right, from so many of Israel's foreign enemies are going to be the very first tribes to experience the deliverance as the Messiah Jesus arrives first in their region. Their region, right there, their territory where Christ came and walked through the territory of those tribes. You think about the blessing Jehovah God takes on human flesh and walks here on the ground of these tribes, spending more of his time there in their territory than any of the other tribes combined. Because where is it that Jesus will set up his headquarters? Right here within this tribe, the tribe of Naphtali, in the city of Capernaum, right there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. So those who were the most depressed, those who were in the greatest bondage, those who were under the greatest attack were those to whom Jesus will come first. So let me encourage you, you might be in the dark today, you might be feeling depressed and beat up, but if so, you are precisely the person whom the Lord Jesus wants to especially visit. And if you're here and you're in that place, right, you're wiped out, understand it was those people who sat in the greatest darkness who would first see the greatest light. Now, probably uh, last and certainly least, we have the seventh lot, 
that came out from the tribe of the children of Dan. So the tribe of Dan was given a piece of land that was smaller than the other tribal allotments, but was very fertile. And you can see there on the map, it had some beautiful beachfront property right there along the Mediterranean. They had fishing. They had that sea trade that was available to them. It was the beautiful stretch of Israel right near Joppa. Remember, that's the place where Simon the Tanner lived in Acts 9 and 10. It's a part of present-day Tel Aviv. It's right there on the coast of southern Israel. And because they were completely surrounded, they have Manasseh on the north, Ephraim and Benjamin on the east, Judah on the south, we notice in the text that the borders of Dan aren't even given to us, right? Because the borders of Dan are all those other tribes. Instead, they just list the different cities, right? 17 different towns. Now, ultimately, what we find is that just like most of the other tribes, Dan never fully possesses even the small allotment of land that they were given. Right? They leave the Canaanites there in the land, and in fact, by the time we get just to Judges chapter 1, we're told that they had lost a whole section of their already small section of land to the Amorites. And as a result, look with me in verse 47, as we read on, it says that the border of the children of Dan went beyond these because the children of Dan went up to fight against Leshem and took it. And they struck it with the edge of the sword and took possession of it and dwelt in it. They called Leshem Dan after the name of Dan their father. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Dan according to their families, these cities with their villages. Now, it's Judges chapter 18 which tells us the bitter tale of the freefall of the tribe of Dan. Right here they are, they're discontent with the lot that the Lord had given them, not to mention the fact that they had lost a part of it as a result of their own failure. So the leaders of Dan send out these spies to find a better spot, and find a better spot they did way, way, way up in the north, right next to Naphtali. And what they found up there was this peaceful group of pagan people who were living in this town called Lashem, who Dan decides that they're just going to kill and take that town as their own, so that they could then move all the rest of the tribe up into that region right there near the source of the Jordan River, just south of what today is Lebanon. In fact, the Jordan River is named that because it comes Yardan, right? It comes down from Dan. Now, all of this might sound great until we read on in the history of God's people to find out that during that time of the divided kingdom, the tribe of Dan set up an idolatrous golden calf up there in their territory so that the people of the north wouldn't have to make their way all the way down to Jerusalem. And sadly, this man-made worship that was set up there at Dan really has become the lasting legacy of that tribe. So the story of Dan in so many ways is a cautionary tale. Because here they left their lot in the south and they went north 
because the southern region they thought was too hard for them to control, right? They left the region assigned to them by God and they went north where it was easier or so they thought. When in reality, what happened is they fell first into idolatry. They made this golden calf eventually. They led the entire nation into the worship of idols initially, not to mention the fact that they now were being attacked constantly by their northern foreign invaders, just like Zebulun and Naphtali, and yet Dan didn't have the promise of later blessing of the Lord when Jesus came. And so by trying to avoid the struggle that they found themselves in, well, actually they put themselves in a whole worse situation, right? So here they're under attack to a greater degree. They had a much more difficult time throughout history because they didn't stay in the place that the Lord knew would be best for them. And maybe there's some people here in this room, like me, who've made that same mistake. And when we fast forward even further, right, to the end of human history, right to the book of Revelation in chapter 7, chapter 7, remember, is the sealing of the 144,000 Jewish witnesses, not Jehovah's Witnesses, Jewish Witnesses, Right, remember 12,000 each, it says, from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. These are these 12, these 144,000 Jewish witnesses who are going to receive the mark of God in their foreheads. They're going to be supernaturally protected by God through the great tribulation so that they can bear witness to the grace of God to all of those who are going to be suffering through the tribulation. It is certainly worth mentioning to note that as you look at that list of those 12 tribes, that the tribe of Dan is mysteriously missing. And the half-tribe of Manasseh has taken its place. And the effective result of that at that time is that all of those from the tribe of Dan who otherwise might have been sealed and preserved through the tribulation, they will end up enduring all of the, the horror of that time. And yet when we take a look at the scriptures, the omission of Dan, it isn't mysterious at all, but it fits perfectly. Because historically, right, we just read that Dan as a tribe was the first to lead the rest of Israel into idolatry, right? That same account we mentioned in Judges chapter 18, what I didn't tell you is that on the way to spy out this new land in the north, the men from Dan, on their way up, they first kidnapped a pagan priest from a man named Micah. They stole his idols, took them as their own, took those idols up and used those to introduce idolatry along with this golden calf to the rest of the nation. And you remember that God had promised very clearly back in Deuteronomy chapter 29 that he would blot out the name of any idolaters. And so that's precisely what we see happening there in this omission of the tribe of Dan in the book of Revelation. And yet, what's super encouraging about even this terrible story is that we do see the tribe of Dan mentioned prophetically in Ezekiel chapter 48. 
The tribe of Dan is mentioned as the first of the tribes who will receive their own allotment in the land distribution during the millennial kingdom. And that happens, of course, after the tribulation, after the omission from their list of those who were sealed. And I love this because the scripture here, it reminds us yet again that despite their failings, God will always remember his people Israel based on his promises to them, even Dan. And that should be such an encouragement to all of the Dans, right, who are here this morning, each and every one of us. Because it's in that very same way, despite our failings, we might suffer sin's consequences initially, right? We might go through those times of tribulation, but God will always be faithful ultimately to those promises that we have in Jesus Christ. That's how awesome is the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the faithfulness of God. So that's the lesson, it's one of the lessons that we learn from this troubled tribe of Dan. Finally, we finish up the last couple verses. This is the inheritance of Joshua. It says, when they had made an end of dividing the land as an inheritance according to their borders, the children of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. According to the word of the Lord, they gave him the city which he asked for, Timnath Serah in the mountains of Ephraim, and he built the city and dwelt in it. So where Caleb's inheritance was given first, right here his faith-filled spy partner Joshua, the leader now of all of the nation, he receives his inheritance last, right? Ever the servant, Joshua makes sure everybody else is taken care of and then he gets his. And it says here that he would get, according to the word of the Lord, whatever it was that he asked for. Right? So what, what, does, what does he ask for? What place could this possibly be? I mean, he's the leader of the nation. And certainly he's probably going to get something really cool, right? like the very best place in the land. And so he asks for Timnath Serah. And you're probably wondering right about now, well, where exactly is that exactly? Right, exactly. You've never heard of it. All we know of it, we read here that it was in the mountains of Ephraim, and it says he built the city and dwelt in it. Now, if we were to go there this morning to where this place is, you would stand there and shake your head. And you would wonder, why in the world did he want that? It's ugly. It's barren. Nothing is growing there. This is just wilderness. Timnath Sarah was an old city in the rugged, infertile, most mountainous district of his own tribe of Ephraim. And so we wonder, well, why not the Mediterranean villa? Right? Why not something up on the Sea of Galilee? Why in the world? would he pick this place? Well, the place itself, Timnath Serah, means abundant provision. And that's how Joshua saw it, because he saw that it was the Lord who had given it, because it was part of his tribe's allotment. 
So Joshua was going to go right where the lot fell to his tribe, and he's going to take that little spot, and he's going to settle there in that abundant provision, and he was going to do it by faith. And you remember last week, remember how he kind of scolded, but then he encouraged his brethren from the tribe of Ephraim. When they complained about that land, he said, look, you, you people say you're great, but you haven't done anything great, but I know you're great as long as you follow the Lord. And so now he comes into the middle of this land and he takes again what is one of the hardest places to conquer in the land and just like Caleb, he conquers it. Because it's one thing to sit there and to say, oh, you know, you're a great people and you need to obey God and you can obey God and God will be faithful to you and he'll bless you as you obey him. Right? Joshua knew it's not enough just to say that as a leader and then to go retire on the coast, right, a club med. He needed them to see that practically in his life. And so he goes in and he does the very thing that he told them that God could do for them, and God does do it for him. So Joshua continues. He gives them this hope, and he gives them this example, and he gives us the very same thing. And he's also given us a beautiful picture, once again, of our own greater than Joshua, the Lord Jesus. Because notice something here. Notice that Joshua doesn't get a territory. He gets a city. A city where he will go and he will dwell with his bride. Just as Jesus will get a city, right? The new Jerusalem, right? Revelation chapter 21, right? Where, he, where we will dwell with him for all of eternity right in that place of abundant provision. It says in verse 51 that these were the inheritances which Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel, divided as an inheritance by lot in Shiloh before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And so they made an end of dividing the country. So, Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. And we thank you as we do each and every time we open it. Lord, we thank you for the great encouragement that it provides to us. And, Father, as we look at so much information, Lord, so much detail, Lord, that we just, we just skim the surface, Lord, of all the things that you want to minister to our hearts, Lord. We pray that you would help to make these truths real to us, Lord. We pray that we would walk away from a chapter like this, just knowing more of your character, Lord, and of your faithfulness and of your great love for each one of us. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.